0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, I do want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 14. We've been making our way through the Gospel of John for some time now. Uh, we've been spending the last number of weeks, last several weeks uh, in John chapters 12. Uh, we've now arrived, uh, starting at 12, we're now into 14. And uh, John chapter 14 begins with Jesus saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Uh, Those are familiar words to many of us. There are many funerals that begin with those words, let not your hearts be troubled. There's a good reason for that. Now in context, Jesus is addressing his disciples who have troubled hearts because he has just told them that he he will soon be departing. He is going away. Uh, But you and I know that there are actually lots of reasons why we might have troubled hearts or why we might experience a troubled heart in this world. Uh, someone dubbed our age the cardiac age. And in doing that, they weren't so much commenting on the medical issues that are related to heart disease, but on the fact that the thing, or the thing that so often besets so many of us is heart trouble of a different kind. There's a kind of heaviness that lots of people feel as they simply look out into the world. There's a lot of uncertainty. We see alarming statistics about things like depression and anxiety. Some people feel a sense of fear or foreboding when they look into the future, when they look at what's ahead for the world or what lies ahead for their children or even where things are at right now. There are lots of reasons, lots of things that cause us to have a troubled heart. Now, my goal today is not to sort of play pop psychologist with you. I'm not intending to oversimplify complex issues of life or mental health. But I do think there's a kind of prescription that we find in the passage that's before us today, a kind of prescription for troubled hearts. The disciples were facing an uncertain future, I mean, everything they had been working for for the past three years, everything they had been sort of leaning into and investing their time in the mission of Jesus was about to come to an end. If the mood heading into Jerusalem just a few days earlier was triumphant as Jesus rode in on that donkey and people lined the streets and waved their palm branches and threw their cloaks on the ground and said, Hosanna to the King of Kings. If that was their mood a few days ago, their mood at this point is utter despair. Jesus announces he is departing, and they want to know, where is he going? What are they supposed to do now? Is he really just going to up and leave them? And the words that Jesus speaks here were intended to comfort them, to calm their troubled Hearts. And I think by extension, these words are also intended to calm our troubled hearts as we live as Jesus followers in this world. And they may be especially important in our cardiac age. So let me read the passage before us. We're looking at John 14, and we're looking at verses 1 to 11. This is God's word, and this is what it says to us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and I have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Well, it is a great passage, and I want to walk us through it by drawing your attention to four things that ought, that ought to help calm our troubled hearts. And the first one is the promise Now, before we even get into the specific promise of Jesus here, I think it's worth noting just how amazing it is that Jesus is the one doing the comforting here. In the last two chapters, in John 12 and John 13, we have seen two instances where Jesus' own soul was deeply troubled, So John 12, 27 revealed the kind of distress that Jesus experienced as he contemplated the cross that was before him. And there we read, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 21 helped us understand the depth of Jesus' vexation as he considers the betrayal of Jesus. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus is about to go to the cross. His soul is troubled. And yet his attention is turned towards his disciples who are grieved at the news of his soon departure. One commentator said it like this, Yet on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional and spiritual support, he is the one who gives, comforts, and instructs. And his comfort at this time was for them to put their trust in him. The passage we're looking at today is bookended by that theme. Notice verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then notice verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. See, The way we find comfort is to put our faith in Jesus. The ultimate comfort we can have in this life comes from Jesus. Uh, We've been teaching you a new song lately. That song is called My One Comfort. That song actually comes from the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question of that catechism asks this, What is your only comfort in life and death? And here's the full answer. That I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our comfort in life and even in the face of death. But now let's look at the specific promise that Jesus makes here. Here's what he says in verses 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The promise of Jesus is the promise of heaven. Now, maybe this seems like an odd way to put it. In my Father's house are many rooms. I don't know if you've ever just sort of stopped to think about all the different types of descriptions that we have for heaven in the Bible, all the different metaphors that are used. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a country, and the idea seems to be to emphasize the vastness of heaven. It's a huge place. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a city, and we all understand something about cities. We understand they're filled with inhabitants, lots and lots of people. Sometimes heaven is referred to as a kingdom. A kingdom means there is a ruler, a king. There's order to that place. At other times, heaven is referred to as paradise. So Jesus will say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. When we speak about heaven as paradise, we are emphasizing the the beauty and the bounty of heaven. But here, Jesus refers to heaven as a house with many rooms. And the two ideas that seem to come from that are that it's a place for family and that it is home. I actually think that the audio adrenaline song is not too far off in saying that it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, and a big, big yard where we can play football. Now, the football part might be conjecture. I understand that. But the picture we ought to have of heaven is the picture of going home. That's the home we were made for. But the point here is that Jesus promises us this heavenly home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, that no doubt will sound overly simplistic to some. I mean, I need more to go on than just a promise. People make promises all the time. Is the promise of heaven just sort of wishful thinking? Is this just sort of pie in the sky and the sweet by and by? Is it just something we tell ourselves to give sort of a false sense of comfort in the face of the the death of a loved one? Oh, they're in a better place. Or is this based on something more certain than that? Now, the truth is that every culture throughout history has had some idea of an afterlife, some sense that death is not just extinction. I know there are individuals who might think that way, but the universal nature of these types of beliefs is really a confirmation of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that God has set eternity into the heart of man, that we long for, we know there's more. That in itself is a kind of evidence, but there are actually lots of good reasons for believing in heaven. I recently read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Heaven. You might be familiar with his earlier books, The Case for Christ or The Case for Faith, and in those books he makes compelling arguments for the Christian faith. Why is the Christian faith true and can we know that? And he does that based on interviews with a wide variety of experts in various fields. The Case for Heaven is a similar book to that. I actually hadn't heard of it until I stumbled upon it uh, in an Indigo bookstore one time. I was just sort of looking around. The subtitle of the book is, A Journalist Investigates the Evidence for Life After Death. And in that book, he tackles the reality of heaven from lots of different angles, interviews philosophers and neuroscientists and those considered experts in regard to near-death experiences. He interviews biblical scholars. I I thought it was an interesting book, helpful in lots of ways, but here's the thing. The best reason we can have for confidence in heaven is the fact that Jesus promised it. Our ultimate confidence in our own resurrection is the fact that Jesus conquered the grave and promised to take us with him. And I was struck by the power of a promise recently by uh, while I was watching the movie 13 Lives. I don't know if you've seen that movie or you know the story. The movie tells the true story of the young soccer team and their coach that got trapped deep in the heart of a cave in Thailand back in 2018. Maybe you remember the story. It was a fascinating story of survival and rescue. The reason the boys were trapped was because of a flash flood and they had to move deep into the recesses of the cave, actually, about four kilometers from the entrance or where they entered the cave. A pair of British divers eventually found the boys about 10 days after they were first trapped. A single dive from the entrance of the cave to the place where the boys were stranded took about six hours, it was through tight spaces. But once the two divers reached those boys, it was apparent they could not bring them back, at least not right away. They had to go back. They had to load up oxygen tanks, other scuba gear, in order to bring the boys safely out of the cave. Now, think about that. You've been trapped for this amount of time. You're terrified. These two divers show up, and soon after that, they say, look, we've got to go. We can't take you now. We'll come back for you. And in fact, it took them another six days before they could actually get the gear and get the other divers to manage to get to those boys and start to bring them back. And I think we find ourselves in a similar situation. Jesus has promised us that in his house there are many rooms, that he's preparing a place for us, and that he will come back and take us to himself. In the meantime, what we have to hold on to is his promise. That he's the one who has said, I am preparing a place for you. I will take you to be with me. So we see the promise of Jesus. The second thing we see here is the presence of Jesus. And I think it would be a huge mistake to miss the second part of verse 3. The second part of verse 3 says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. See, the disciples' hearts were troubled because Jesus had told them he was going away, he's departing, he's going to die. Again, Jesus was their leader. He had been with them for three years. He had taught them and mentored them and trained them. They were left bewildered by this news. What would they do now? Now, I mentioned this last week, but throughout this entire discourse, Jesus gives reassurances that even though he's leaving, they will not be alone. And there's actually two assurances that Jesus gives throughout these chapters, that even though he's gone, his followers will not be alone. The first assurance he gives them is that he will send the Holy Spirit to be with them. So we're going to see this all through this discourse. Jesus will say things like this. He'll say, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring your, bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Or in John 15, we read this, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And then we read something similar in chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That truth was meant to be a comfort to the, to the disciples. I'm leaving you, but I will send the spirit to be with you. You will not be alone. The truth that's highlighted here in verse 3 is different than that. Really what Jesus is saying is, look, the ultimate reunion will come when I come back and I take you to be with me in my Father's house. I've mentioned it already, but the New Testament uses lots of different metaphors to help us understand something about heaven, a country, a city, a kingdom, paradise, and a house. Now, there's lots of conjecture that we might try to do based upon those things. A good number of you are studying the book of Revelation in our men's studies or women's studies. You haven't got there yet, but in its closing chapters, the book of Revelation gives us a sort of description of heaven. And I say sort of because there are some things that we recognize in those descriptions, trees and rivers and streets, but also things that we can't really fathom like the fact that there's no sun or moon or sea. And based on what is written there, we might not be able to come up with a proper rendering, like an artist's rendering of heaven. But the one thing that we absolutely cannot miss and should not miss about those descriptions is that Jesus is at the center of it all. So Revelation 21 gives us this description. It says, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it, gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and it will be night no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. The most striking thing about those descriptions is not the beauty of the place, but the fact that we will be forever in the presence of Jesus. We will see his face. Now, everyone has their view of heaven. They have their view of what they might look forward to, right? The beauty, the absence of sickness and death, the reunion with loved ones, and all of those things are great. But none of them are the essence of heaven. The essence of heaven is that we will be forever in the presence of Jesus. John Piper said it this way, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? See, Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the promise. We will be in the presence of Jesus eternally in his company. The Third thing we learn about here is the person of Jesus. So we're going to camp here for a little bit. But I think we see the importance of this in the exchange between Jesus and Thomas in verses 4 to 6. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus tells the disciples, look, you know the way to heaven. They say, Thomas says, no, we don't. And Jesus explains that the way to heaven is through him And through him alone, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is one of the seven I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John. We see it beginning in chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He's the one who sustains us, who satisfies us. We see it in John 8, where Jesus stands up in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles and declares, I am the light of the world. It's through Jesus that we can see what we need to see. He also says there simply, I am, I'm the self existent one. In John 10, there's two I am statements. Jesus says, I am the gate, I am the shepherd. He's the one who protects. He's the one who provides for his people. In John chapter 11, we looked at this. Jesus gives this amazing promise when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. The relationship with Jesus is the answer to the problem that plagues us all, the problem of death. All of those I am statements hold great promise. We want to be satisfied. We want to be protected. We want to be provided for. We want to live forever. But here in John 14, we come to this I am statement. It's the least popular of them all. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that. To the modern ear, it sounds pretty narrow-minded. How can there be just one way to God? This is one of the most offensive doctrines to those outside the church. I think it's also one of the most embarrassing doctrines to some people inside the church. A survey done at Christian universities revealed that students were more embarrassed by Christianity's exclusive claims than they were by any other part of Christian doctrine, any other aspect of their faith. But this is not the only place we find something like this. We can't just sort of skirt around it. In the book of Acts, Peter delivers a sermon to the religious leaders of the day, and he says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The Apostle Paul spoke of Jesus like this. He said, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the book of 1 Timothy, Paul says it this way, for there is one God and there is one mediator between man and man Between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, this comes off as offensive to many people. We live in a pluralistic society. We live around people who come from different cultures, who have different ideas. There's much that's good about that. A lot of ways our lives are enhanced by broadening our perspective, being exposed to different traditions or traditions other than our own. We ought to respect various cultures and traditions around us, but that doesn't mean that all ideas are equally true. We would maintain that the Christian faith is and always has been exclusive, and it's based upon the fact that Jesus himself tells us, I am the way. The truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, some people might say, well, look, that's all fine and well, or that was all fine and well to hold a belief like that in the first century. But this is the 21st century. I mean, we've had the opportunity to explore our world. We, we see that people live differently in different cultures. And even if we haven't personally visited some of those places and cultures... Our cities are giant melting pots where we can observe all sorts of different religious traditions. It's the kind of thing we hear voiced all the time. So Oprah Winfrey will say, well, actually, there are many diverse paths to God. And if it's not Oprah saying it, it's your neighbor, right? Drive around our city. You'll find mosques and Jewish synagogues and Sikh temples and kingdom halls and a host of other religious expressions. Just walk down our street. There's a Buddhist society that meets next door. Often on Sunday mornings, the JWs set up their literature stands just down the street. Isn't it a little narrow-minded in this day and age to say, ours is the only way? Well, it sounds very modern and progressive to say something like that, but it's actually not a new concept. You have to remember, the Roman Empire of the first century was a very pluralistic society. They had a, an entire pantheon of gods. There was a God for every occasion. So the message that Jesus is the only way was no le- is no less radical today than it was then. That's why I said the Christian faith is and always has been exclusive. It's always been unpopular to say that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. You might remember the Apostle Paul coming into the city of Athens and discovering it was a very religious and pluralistic place. Here's what it says in Acts 17. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown gods. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And everything. See, the Athenians were very spiritual. They had all their bases covered. They even had a, a, an idol or statue made to an unknown God, just in case they missed anyone. And Paul tells them what they need is they need to know the one true God. That's all that matters. So Jesus was not just another religious leader. That's not what he claimed about himself. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we have to remember, Jesus is the one who said this. I know I've shared this with you before. But if I stood up here on a Sunday morning and I said to you, you know, I just want you to know that my wife is the most beautiful woman in the world, many of you would say, oh, that's cute. Lee thinks that his wife is the most beautiful woman in the world. You'd be perfectly fine with that. But if Ilona walked up here this morning and said to you, hey, I just want you all to know I'm the most beautiful woman in the world, you would have a different reaction to that, wouldn't you? Look, Jesus is the one. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's going to tell them, look, if you're looking for the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen him. So our comfort comes from the person of Jesus. The final thing we learn about here is the patience of Jesus. And we see this especially in verses 8 to 11. Let me just read those verses for you again. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but... The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So just remember, Jesus spent three years with the disciples. Lived with them. Traveled with them. Ministered with them. He taught them. He trained them. John 14 is at the very end of those three years. This is like the night before graduation. But as you listen to the questions they're asking and the conclusions they are making, it's clear they still don't get it. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Look, if you have kids, you can probably relate to this, right? I mean, you give... Detailed instructions. You show them step by step how to do things. You give timely reminders. And then they forget the whole thing like they never heard it. It can test your patience. And just as an aside, my encouragement to you who are in the midst of that right now is that if you stay with it, if you are consistent with it, until your kids are in like their 20s, Or so, you might actually see some progress, like maybe just a little bit. Now, it's Thomas, actually, who first questions Jesus here. Jesus says, look, you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like, you've been talking about this for three years. We have no clue what you're talking about. Kind of the way many of you are after Sunday morning, right? I don't know what that was about, but, you know, it was was interesting, hopefully. But think about this. This is Thomas. Now, many of you know what happened after Jesus was raised from from the dead. Jesus appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't with them at the time. So they tell Thomas, and Thomas doesn't believe a word of it. John 20 records it like this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And if you want to know something about the patience of Jesus, you just have to know what Jesus did next because Jesus appeared and he said, Thomas take your hand, place it in my wounds. It's the patience of Jesus. He is patient with us. And it's just a personal testimony. I have to say I am so thankful for the patience of Jesus in my life. I'm thankful for his patience before I came to faith, and I'm thankful for the patience he has shown me in the time since. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about his own life. He said, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And then Paul says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And I just want to say, Jesus has been patient with each one of you. And the proper response to the patience of God is to put our faith in him. It's to stop trusting in ourselves. It's to stop just looking at all the things we might not understand and to come to that place where we say, in this world we have troubled hearts Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. Put your trust in me. That's the proper response to God's patience. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great patience with us. We thank you for the incredible promise that we have in you. This promise that you are preparing a place for us, that you will take us to be with you, and that one day we will stand and we will see your face. And we will see it forever. We will worship you. So, God, we pray in the meantime, as we go through our lives, as we deal with different circumstances, things that challenge us, that challenge our faith, Lord, we pray that our confidence would rest in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.